Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen and someone whose writing is an important and valued resource to spiritual seekers. We invite you to share the daily meditations in these podcasts with your friends and family. Our core purpose is to share Henry Nouwen's spiritual vision so that people can be transformed by experiencing themselves as God's beloved. Now, let me introduce you to my guest today. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of talking with Dante Stewart. Dante is the author of a new book called Shoutin' in the Fire. I love what author Robert Jones Jr. says of Dante. Only once in a lifetime do we come across a writer like Dante Stewart, so young and yet so masterful with the pen. This work, this shoutin' in the fire, is a thing to make dungeons shake and hearts thunder. Each line is packed with such glowing wisdom and grounding love that it makes the eyes tear and the hair raise on the backs of necks. It has the lyrical prowess of a good sermon, yes, but the rhythm is entirely ancestral, like it was conveyed by our departed elders from their intimate prayer circles. Dante, it's a wonderful book. It has been a treat to read. Uh, thank you for for joining us today on Henry Now and Now and Then. Oh, indeed. I look forward to it. Dante, it's a stirring meditation uh, on being black and and learning to love in a loveless and a, a very anti-black world. What compelled you to write it? Well, I think every kind of thing of art or artifact of art is always kind of grown out of the kind of deepest questions that one is facing in any given moment. So when we talk about like, okay, what compelled you to write it? My mind goes back to the moment where I am in my truck and, you know, Alton Sterling is murdered and then Philando Castile is murdered. Um, and I am a young man who is trying to find himself. I'm married. I'm inside of a white church. I am so many things to so many different people. Uh, to some people, I am, you know, the former athlete who was at Clemson, who quit football, who left. For some people, I was the drummer, the little drummer boy, the vacuum boy, church boy, um, who shouted around church, who sung, who preached. For some people, um, I was just a worker at like Enterprise, washing cards, renting out cars. For some people, I was, you know, a pastor intern, leading people through a book on um, race by white dude who, who like, like says like, oh, at one point in time I was racist, but then I got saved, and then automatically, all of a sudden, everything went away. And for me, when I think about being compelled, or in the language of of of, of the old days, being called to do something, having this kind of enthusiasm or being sealed with with God in any moment. I think about those times of me being many things to many people and me choosing writing as a way to become something to myself. Um, and, and, and that probably was what compelled me to write this book was, yeah, I looked at my life and, 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 and so many people made me so many things. I let so many people make me so many things. And I was wondering, is there a moment in time where I can choose something for myself 
that is mine, that is the way I want it, that is the way I feel it, that is the way I remember it. And once it's done, then it's kind of soaring the world and do whatever it wants. So that's what kind of compelled me to write it. It's interesting because um, as I read the book, I mean, I loved the honesty and I loved the story you were telling me. And it was your story. It was so personal. It was so intimate. And it's funny because I did a documentary series called Stories of Our Becoming. Because I always found that when people started to tell, how did I become who I am today? They went back into who shaped and formed them. And your story does that so well. It is the story of the little boy. It's the story of all the influences. It's the story of... It, it's a, it's a self-awareness story that that mm-hmm. um, is told in a way that, honestly, I want others to read too because you helped me understand things that I didn't understand. I went on the journey with you through this book. And, you know, I, it's funny. As I read it, I think, I can hardly wait to read your next book <laughs> because you're on a journey and you're honest about it. I That's something I, f- I felt within the pages. Um you have come of age in a time mm-hmm. of terror. Let's mm-hmm. go back through that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book, I mean, I chronicle very viscerally um, and very intimately death. <laughs> like, when I think about, like, my book, you know, it's crazy. It's like, I never really thought that I was or even thought of myself as kind of a theologian of grief and self-love and becoming. Um, But really, I mean, as I think about my work, so much of it is about giving language to very kind of viscerally tough things and trying, as Toni Morrison would say, to translate sorrow into meaning. And so, like, when I think about coming of age in a time of terror, it is about the ways in which my reality intersected with the realities of others who looked just like me, but were treated by this world as if their humanity was a problem. And so when I think about Alton Sterling and the like times I watch, and you know, I, I don't know if this is healthy, the times that I replayed his death via audio and the moments leading up to it, or Philando Castile and playing that over and over and over again, trying to become a journalist, a storyteller of not just the deaths they experienced, but the lives they lived. Like it took me into places to think about, okay, like how does one grieve and how does one get better and how does one love and how does one grow up in a world where the relation to your personhood is either of dismissal, erasure, or destruction. And of course, as Imani Perry would say, like black life is not terrible. White supremacy is. And now we have to be careful to say like, yo, being black in this country is not terrible. The conditions to which we have to live in and breathe in, as I kind of work my way to the last chapter, of exhale and humanity and breath, like those conditions are bad. And so coming of age in a time of terror, me kind of chronicling the deaths of Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, my uncle um, and, and, and others, and even George Floyd, um, 
it was about okay a young black man trying to make sense of the world in a way that I don't lose hope but I am seen and my interior world is protected and whoever chooses to go on that journey with me will see that like I do cry I do feel I do mourn but that's not all I do I live I get better I challenge myself I grow so that is come of age it is about not letting the terror be the period of our lives, but the comma, and us being the writers determining how, determining how that story is told in the end. It's, it, it's interesting because you, you speak truth to pain and to trauma, and you don't step aside in that. And you even, like one of the things that really touched my heart was the honesty with which you addressed the transformation in yourself in, in, in the process of rejecting blackness and coming to love it. And I, 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 that, was, that was really quite profound for me. Can you take us mm. on that journey? Yeah, yeah. That journey begins really going to Clemson University. You know, as a young man playing football from the black rural south, oftentimes we hear that, yo, there's nothing here for you, and that, you know, we come to believe the script, the story, that in order for us to be successful, in order for us to make it, for other, for, in order for us to find some type of security in American society, then we need to be in closest proximity to whiteness. And what we didn't take into account is the ways in which, like, in order for whiteness to be a thing, then it must have total control. Um, it, it, must, it must have control over the mind, the body, the movement, the imagination. Uh, the dreams, the future, the present, the past, like it must have total, total dominance, you know, and I think it's subtle because in a, in very real ways, in order for us to make it in the society, the ways in which the structures have been ordered, the world that we have inherited is, that is true, that in order for you to be protected, in order for you to dream, in order for you to make it and find security, you have to be like linked to whiteness in some form of fashion. But for many of us, we don't work off that framework. We go and just think, you know, I'm just an athlete playing at Clemson. You know, I'm just a young man just trying to get a high live. I'm just trying to make something of myself. I'm just trying to do this and trying to become this and that. And over time, what we take for granted is there's always a cost and there's always a price to pay. And that's why I entitled the, the chapter Wages what it is. It is the metaphor of this is the wage of your entering. This is the price. This is what will happen to you if you're not aware of where, you're, where you come from or where you're going. Because if you don't know who you are, then people will make you whatever they want. And I know that's a familiar colloquialism, but it's true. But if you don't know where you come from, if you don't know the land that made you and that birthed you and that gave you vegetation, that gave you life, that gave you oxygen, then you will be convinced that all that land gives you is bad things. And all that land use, is useful for is, you know, um, providing for someone else and not you. 
And so that journey begins as a young black rural kid going off to Clemson University, not knowing who I am, believing that the best thing I have to offer the world is my athletic ability rather than my humanity. And so over time, so many of us, and it's not just me, it's so many of us, those of us who come from the areas that I came from, which were marked by, you know, low income and things like that, lack of education, access to health care and you know, everything is so far away and things like that. And that, and those places really stifle, you know, your identity and your dreams. And so when you get to places like Clemson University, when they, it's like the thing that's to be desired. Um, and so over time, it was a subtle but powerful process that made me believe that my investment in white space was more important than the reality of my displacement from the places, those black places, those black rural places and stories and traditions and voices that made me. You, you, uh, you express that so well. You, you ached for belonging. And then it's interesting because you tell the story of how you turned to the white evangelical church and it was a place that you learned to be Christian but never be black. Mm-hmm. That's what you write. And I, I found that profound. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, really. I started in California. So we, we, well, we're not really, it's actually started in Clemson. So like I was playing drums on the gospel choir, um, in the all season. And then, you know, over time, you know, when you're an athlete at a predominantly white institution, uh, then the people who have closest proximity to you are white Christians. And so over time you just started going to their environment, to their places. And so like, so many of us received the message like, yo, you need to get spiritually connected and grounded wherever you go. And there is something about like black spirituality that is flexible, um, you know, in some sense of like, you know, I am who I am. I stand in, in the world as who I am, but I am willing to receive from the faith tradition um, and, and voice of another. And so when you go, when I went to Clemson uh, and played there, you know, I started going to like FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, um, and others go to Campus Outreach and Athletes in Action. And what we didn't realize is that these uh, environments are not neutral, um, but they are very much rooted in tradition, particularly white conservative evangelical tradition. And they're rooted in their understanding of what a Christian is, which is oftentimes, you know, a white conservative, straight Christian male. Um, And so this imagination and this desired person is oftentimes at odds with your own lived experience. And this is even worse for black women uh, this is even worse for, for, for black LGBTQ, or if you're non-black and LGBTQ, or if you're trans, anybody who do, does not, you know, perfectly align with that white male Christian conservative identity is oftentimes treated as second class. Their, their kind of creativity and value is exploited or erased, and ultimately they have to live inside of a religious environment where the first response to their humanity is not embrace, but the first response to their humanity is damnation. And so, you know, going into these environments in college, you, you kind of get caught up in it. It's like a whirlwind where you kind of get sucked into the ocean and wherever it spits you out, that's where you land. Um, and ultimately we landed in Calvary Chapel and then ultimately, you know, through time to Southern Baptist church um uh, until you know 2016 2017 where i ultimately realized that like my family and i could not be in a space 
that only one of my presence insofar made them believe that they were not racist, um, but didn't like really love us for who we are. They were terrific, you know, at like listening to black stories and in some sense exploiting black stories, but ultimately these spaces prove inept and terrible at loving black people. And so the more I was inside of that space, the more I realized that truth. You're right. I, I'd spent years in white churches showing I was the nice black dude. And then there's there's a quote here that I, I like. We're not here because our country and the people of this country have been exceptional at becoming more loving and more honest and less violent. No, we're here because we refuse to believe their lie, that our lives don't matter, that we should accept our suffering and the best parts of ourselves are what can survive whiteness and terror. Um, I, you don't spare yourself at all in this book, and I, I, oh, I appreciate no. oh, it so much because it is really it is really a story of becoming. It is really a story of waking up. Um, I love also you wrote you wrote another thing in here that I just like I, you know something if you looked at my book, it is just lined throughout because I enjoyed it so much. But one of the things that caught my eye was this quote here. I don't know if I'll have the answers, but what I do know, Black people deserve love. Ba- black people don't deserve bullets. Black people deserve tenderness. Black people don't deserve terror. Um, yes, indeed. Tell me, tell me who Jesus is for you in all of this. I want to know because I think that too has gone through a deeper understanding that you need to share with us. It's rich and it's it's real. Oh yes, yeah. For me, at one point in time. Jesus was just a theological concept. Jesus was this kind of ethereal, out there person um, who became like almost, you know, the joker card, the, the one that wins the game in the end, you know, that the one that has all power, that, you know, is desire not not simply because it is, but because it's something about it that can be used to 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 overtake another, to overpower another, to to be seen as objective and in some sense powerful in the world. And 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 this kind of likens goes back to my own reading of Howard Thurman and Jesus and Disinherited. You know, there were there were books that were formative for me when I was kind of going through my own kind of spiritual unraveling and being put back together again. And one of those books was, you know, Jesus and Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Another was uh, Where Do We Go From Here by Martin Luther King. Another was uh, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. Another was Enfleshing Freedom by M. Sean Copeland, theologian M. Sean Copeland. And even... I mean, we're here for, for, for on a podcast celebrating Henry now, and, and it is no way to think about my, my journey with Jesus or my journey with myself without thinking about reaching out or in the name of Jesus or even the wounded healer um, or life of the beloved or even that sermon, you know, on that, that famous Henry Nowen sermon on being the beloved of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think about all of those voices and those imaginations, those theological imaginations of who Jesus is. And, you know, at one point in time, I, I read Jesus as this kind of being that, that was to be used 
for power and control and a way to like arrogantly position myself as believing that in order for people to be close to God, they had to be close to me. But now and over time, through, through, through both writing, through reading, through my own kind of journey, I'm realizing I would rather a Jesus of John 10, 10 that says, you know, the, the enemy comes to steal and to kill and destru- to destroy. But I have become that they may have life and experience life to the full. When I think about Jesus and I read Jesus through my own experience, because if we're honest, and this is kind of back on my sociology background, uh, thinking about C. Wright Mills, that we, we all have experienced the world from the place of our own kind of lived experience, our experience of religion, our experience of God, the way we name God, the way we relate to God and ourselves and to the natural world and to the world of Humanity has always grown out of the social, political, religious context we are groomed and grown in. And so that is going to shape how we name God and, 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 and think about God and, and, and the likes and, and what we do with God when, when, when we actually, quote unquote, have God. And so when you look in Christian history, um, there's always been this kind of battle for what type of God would consume our imagination, what type of faith would consume our body. And so I think about these writers of, from Baldwin to Morrison to Bambara to, 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 to Henry Nowen to, to, to uh, Thomas Merton and the likes. I've started to understand Jesus as, as a friend and a lover and a liberator, not just somebody who wants to control and demean and demand uh, everything of another that that takes everything from their personhood, but I feel God that 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 comes close and comes near, um, that does not want to erase us and does not want us to hate ourselves in order to be loved by God. Now, as I write in the book, and Jesus does not have to hurt people in order to love them, and so I think about like my understanding of Jesus. It's like okay whatever, whether it's my own understanding of politics or religion or my own understanding of myself and relating to myself, if it steals from me my ideal of what I can become based on the dignity that God had already, you know, placed upon me that emanates from my very, very, from the very center of my life, if it steals that from me, if it kills my imagination of what I in the world can become, and if it destroys the beauty and the fabric of our lives that's woven together in our stories, then it's not something that Jesus wants. The Jesus that I have come to learn and to love is a Jesus that wants us to experience life and life to the full. And there's a story in the Gospels with Jesus, with the, Jesus talking to the Pharisees and many of the leaders, the religious leaders, you know, are using religion, you know, as a way to harm others. And Jesus says to them, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And I imagine that Jesus, in my own sanctified imagination, thinking with Professor Will, Will Gaffney in her book, Womanist Midrash and Womanist Theological Reflection, my sanctified imagination, I imagine Jesus saying that your faith is public, but it is problematic. And if we want to live the life of Jesus, we need a faith that liberates and loves and put, puts us back together again, allow us to find ourselves rather than, rather than a faith that turns faith into a weapon to be used. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tell me a little bit 
uh, about Jesus' solidarity with blackness because you get that and, and, and you've just shared that in, in some ways and yet there's also more that I found within your book that just moved my heart so much. Uh, the solidarity with black bodies being lynched and Jesus being lynched. I get that and I loved it and I want you to share a little bit about that. Oh yeah, this and this is really in love of, of course, Dr. James Cone, James Hal Cone, and in his incredible book, you know, Black Theology or Black Power and Black Power or God of the Oppressed, Spirits and the Blues, with the Cross and the Lynching Tree. You know, when when I started to read, and this really, you know, was was my reading of his last book, which was his kind of theological memoir, his spiritual autobiography. Said I wasn't going to tell nobody. Um, he, he had this line that I, that I was, I, it kind of stilled me, you know, when I read it, he said that, you know, he had this PhD, but he needed to develop a theology that was both accountable to God and to black people. And when I think about Jesus's blackness, um, you know, I don't think about, you know, it to kind of use this kind of theological term or scientific term or philosophical term, you know, ontological, I don't, I don't care you know, I mean, I do care that Jesus is not white, you know, but I, yeah. I'm not as caring of, you know, what was Jesus particularly ontologically black. But I am more concerned about the ways in which Jesus stood alongside in solidarity with the marginalized of society, the same way black people deal with marginalization in our society and is somebody who stands in that marginalization and wants to bring meaning to say that your life matters much more than the political or the, 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 the spiritual and religious space wants to tell you. I am uh, concerned um, with, with, with the type of love that Toni Morrison writes about in Paradise when she writes that that, that Jesus had been freed from white religion and he wanted these kids to know that they did not have to beg for respect it was already in them, and they only needed to display it. Uh, they weren't talking about, you know, Jesus' skin color particularly, though he definitely wasn't white, but they were talking about his experience, about what Jesus knew, what it meant, how Jesus knew, like James Baldwin, what it meant to live in occupied territory, and how James Baldwin and, and Katie Cannon and, 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 and so many of these black theologians and womanist theologians wanted to say that, you know, the Jesus that we worship is not a Jesus who, who just simply, uh, um, who's just simply concerned about this nostalgic past, but like Henry Nouwen asked, how do we lead this person to tomorrow? And that's the Jesus that, that is black is, is a Jesus that believes that there are black people in the future and is so foundationally and fundamentally concerned with how do I lead the black child, the black woman, the black gay, the black trans folk, uh, the black, the black writer, the black preacher, the black husband, the black father, the black, the black man, the black woman, the black person who's insecure, the black person who is, who is secure, the one who is an artist, the one who's on the street. How do I lead that person? to tomorrow that is the jesus that's black for me 
I love that. I love that. Um, it's interesting because you do remind me of Henry Nowen. You remind me of him so much because of that level of honesty that I find in, in all of his writings. And you mentioned the wounded healer. Do you have that feeling of being called yourself? In a way, you can't be a wounded healer until you honestly say, here are the wounds. Here they are. Here's what I'm caring. Here's what I'm trying to hide. But then to actually use them to minister to others is so profound. Tell me a little bit about some of the ways in which you find Henry has has given you resources. Oh, man. Oh, well, I have in present, as we're talking, I have a copy of The Wounded Healer um, in front of me. Um, in preparation for this conversation, I went back <laughs> and, and and pulled out my copies of Henry Now and and, and actually reaching out. I read reaching out um, yeah. every year, every uh-huh. single year. I read uh-huh. reaching out, uh, but I don't know where. Actually, I don't know where it's at currently. My children have been in my study. I got books <laughs> all over the place, and I don't know where. I really don't even know where my copy of Reaching Out is at. But when I when I think about Henry Nowen's, you know, just importance in my life. I'm on page 38 and it's, it's lined, it's lined again and again and again and underline. I write the Christian leader is therefore a person who is willing to put their own articulated faith at disposal of those who ask for their help. Then I go in the, on page 39 and it's on three paragraphs are underlined and I write vulnerability with an explanation point. Then I go and there's a folded page on page 41 and there's underlined and I got three exclamation points. And then I go, I can go to the end of the book on page 81 and I wrote the community of liberators. The world is full of women and men and children who are waiting, waiting for liberator Jesus. And I think about like like this is like I, I probably wrote this back in like 2016, 2017 when I was trying to be put back together in my own unraveling and my own revelation of myself. And I realized that Henry Nowen was a person who gave me language. You know, he was a person who taught me how to be compassionate with myself. He was a person who taught me um, that you know that that our religion you know, can can only be powerful insofar as it helps the most marginalized find their humanity and meaning and their freedom. Uh, Henry Nowen was a person who showed me that, like, there are things, like I write on page 84, inside of myself that I write reflect on this. Then there, there, there are times where I write, wow, and I'm wowed by this person. <laughs> And so when I'm, <laughs> and, you know, I think about Henry Nowen and that, that is what Henry Nowen is for me. It's like, he's given me language. He's given me things to ponder. He's given me the grace and the compassion that we all need. And I think of my book as that for people. Yeah. Is that like, you will be disappointed if you come to my book looking for answers. Mm. But you will find so much if you come to my book looking for yourself. That's that is so well put. It's interesting because I, I, I 
underlined the word vulnerability because your book is vulnerable. You allowed yourself to be vulnerable. You, I didn't feel like you hid. I felt like you said, here's my journey. Uh, you, you helped me understand how rage became a tool in your life. Uh, rage literally mm-hmm. became uh, a, a tool to put the shattered self back together again, which was important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I love... I love the vulnerability, and I, I want to encourage everyone to get this book. I, I loved it, and I think it's an important book to be reading right now. I really do. It's funny because it before we talked, you had mentioned how you'd enjoyed reaching out, so I found my copy of Reaching Out. And what I was reminded of with Reaching Out, I commissioned my, my son-in-law as a painter, and I commissioned him to do a painting of Henry. This is back about seven or eight years ago. And he did a beautiful painting of Henry. He's a gifted painter. But he took the background and he put the pages of reaching out. That became the canvas. Because he said, that has so spoken into my life that he speaks to me out of those words. And there's Henry sitting on the pages of reaching out. Because uh, it, it, it is, I guess it's Henry being vulnerable in his books that has really perhaps met us in ways that maybe we're used to it now but we weren't at the time when he's when he started writing like this I don't think there were many that were writing like this but he was willing to say here's my inner battle and be so breathtakingly honest with it that you could drop your mask and say I've got a battle too I'm 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 worried in this area of my life I'm I'm trying to keep the mask up but it's falling down all the time mm-hmm. It, it is the breathtakingly honesty of your book and the fearlessness that I have really loved. Uh, at, toward the end, there's a question that you, you drop in there that your sister asked. And it was a sweet question, and I, I, I meant to start with it, but here we are at the, getting closer to the end, and, and it was the question about, when did you first realize you were black? She asked that. Yeah, yeah. I answered that one way in the book, and I think now when I, I'm always going to be returning back to that question. Even today, when I think about the question, I think about it now, years removed from that question, I'm like, okay, I think I, I, I first learned it back home, mm-hmm. like before, before. I ever knew what white supremacy or racism was. I knew the warmth of our home mm-hmm. before I ever knew the history that was woven into the fingers of my mother and my father, and my grandmother and my grandfather. I knew what it meant for them to create a space where we saw ourselves in art and music and film before I ever knew that certain people were hell-bent on erasing our stories, my home was surrounded by books telling us who we are and where we come from, where we can go. Before I ever knew that policing in this country was a institution built out of, just built out of this unmitigated desire to see black people as criminals. In my own home, I knew that I was not a criminal, but I was somebody to be loved and desired. And so when was the first time I knew I was black? It was back home. Mm. 
And I guess as I'm answering that question today, it is every single day I'm learning more and more what it means to be who I am and to become who I am in the midst of all the insecurity, to try and collect artifacts of our lives and the everyday ordinary power of who we are, whether through a copy of Jet Magazine from 1963 that sits behind me or a copy of the 1961 issue of, of Ebony Magazine that sits behind me or whether it's you know, the black newspaper that circulated around the country that sits behind me from 1963 when, when JFK was murdered, or whether it's all the black books and classics that surround me or the records that's literally on my shelf, or even the picture of my family that's on the shelf as well. I'm learning what that means every day, every, every, every single day. I'm learning what that means, and it's making me better. You know, I'm reminded of... Um, James Baldwin writing in In Search of a Majority, uh, where he says that, you know, he perceives us of his own life as journeying toward that which he doesn't understand. And it is in the journeying that he becomes better. And so I believe that answering that question, when was the first time you learned that you was black, is a question that I'm answering myself or reaching toward every single day. And in that journeying, toward what others did not want us to see, what others wanted to destroy, what I have come to find, the miracle that is our blackness, it is in journey toward that, that I'm becoming better. Well, it, it, it's throughout the pages of this book, I know you're a cherished child. I know you're a cherished husband and friend. I can see that in the pages and, and now a father of two, which is pretty exciting. Um, the sense of being cherished is important and knowing God cherishes us. And um, I, I, as I look at what you have written, I, I want to ask one last question. What's mm-hmm. your hope where mm-hmm. you sit today? Tell me. Mm-hmm. It's on the last line of the book. Like, we are exhausted, but we catch our breath again. Like, there, there have been people who've read my book and have like criticized it because it's not hopeful enough. Like I've literally had people say that like, yo, where is where is the hope in this book? You know, where is it? It's as much like when people read Tanahasi Coast Between the World and Me, and they're like, yo, there's no hope in the book. And at one point in time, I believed that too about Between the World and Me until I read it again, again, and again, and again. And I found that the hope that we desire is in the living. It is, despite all of the things that try to choke our common humanity out, you can be non-Black and read this book and identify with ways that, like, things have choked your humanity out or try to steal your joy, or try to steal your idea of yourself. But this book is also about the ways in which, even in the midst of the chokeholds of life, that we find ways to breathe, have grace and compassion with ourselves, and be transformed in our stories, and become the type of people that we desire to see in the world. And so that's my hope, is that like, and it's woven through all of the book. Yeah. That to, to love yourself. Yeah. 
to respect yourself, as June Jordan says. She says that I am feminist and I am black, and that means this, that I decide to love myself and respect myself as if everything depended on my ability to have self-love and self-respect. That is that book. That is Shouting in the Fire, is learning how in the midst of the fires of life to go through them, but to go through the fire not as something that destroys us, but something that refines. Yes, it's hot. Yeah, yeah, it's hot is right, shouting in the fire. This book is hot. But I gotta say, it is you're right, it's for everyone because it really tells you how to take what what comes your way and find the way through it and onward and upward and, and, and it really models that. That that I would say. But but I'll tell you one of the the clear to me ingredients in it is the pure honesty. And you uh, you don't go easy on yourself or anyone else, and I love that. And I think it's it makes it such an important book for everyone to be reading. Honestly, please, readers or listeners, do consider Dante Stewart's Shouting in the Fire. I highly recommend it. Dante, thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, what you have given us today. Uh, it's uh, profound, and uh, it calls us forward, and it brings... Uh, it awakens a sense of of worth and uh, and value in everyone. I hope it's it's been good stuff. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed Dante Stewart's book Shouting in the Fire, and I highly recommend you get this. As well, we talked about Henry's books, The Wounded Healer and Reaching Out. They're both classics. If our discussion today has challenged and inspired you, please pass this podcast on to others. For more resources related to today's conversation, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we would be so grateful if you take time to give us a review or a thumbs up or pass this on to your friends and companions on the faith journey. Thanks for listening. Until next time.